Welcome to another episode of At Any Rate, our global research podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the U.S. macro and market landscape. My name is Sam Azzarello, and I lead content strategy for global research, and I'm joined by three researchers from across our department. Jay Berry, co-head of U.S. rate strategy, Mira Chindon, co-head of FX strategy, and Michael Faroli, our chief U.S. economist. We have a great discussion in store, and we're going to talk about the outlook in the here and now, and also longer run dynamics in the U.S. macro and market landscape. And to kick things off, we're going to start with Mike, uh, the U.S. economy. I'm saying things that everybody already knows, but strong Q3 print, yet softer jobs report last week, inflation coming down a little bit. This is a three-part question to kick off the conversation. So I guess, one, why has the economy been so resilient? Two, can we extrapolate that out into future quarters? What's your view? And then the third is this idea of growth staying strong, but inflation coming down. Is that congruent? Yes or no? Uh, okay, so on why the economy has been resilient, I think one uh, sort of unanticipated offset to the uh, monetary tightening that we've seen has been the loosening in fiscal policy. So on a cash flow basis, uh, the deficit went from about 4% of GDP um, last year to about 7% this year. Not all of that has been stimulus, but some of it has, and that probably helped offset uh, some of the tightening from monetary policy, kept aggregate demand strong. Um, we're not anticipating that to uh, continue. Next year, in fact, we're anticipating a bit of a modest fiscal tightening. Um, so, in terms of do we think growth will continue to be strong? No, we're looking for some slowing next year in part because of this fiscal story I just mentioned, um, but also because of some of the unrealized monetary tightening. So, you know, I think we saw the beginnings of that last year, uh, I'm sorry, last Friday with some of the decline in aggregate uh, hours worked. Um, uh, third question was, well, it's a three-parter. It was a three-parter, you did one and two. So the third part is growth versus inflation. Can growth stay? Oh, inflation, now? yeah. Uh, so we do think uh, if we're right that the economy slows, that should reinforce uh, the easing in inflation that we've already seen. So third quarter, we had annualized core PCE up two and a half percent. You know, maybe the last mile of disinflation is going to be a little tougher uh, or a little stickier. So absent a recession, maybe we don't get all the way down to two percent next year in terms of inflation. But we do think, again, if we're right in uh, some of these factors eventually leading to the slowing in growth. And again, I think we've seen some hints of it last Friday. Uh, I would expect that some of the disinflation we've seen will be sustained and probably have a little further to go in terms of uh, goods pricing uh, contributing to that. But uh, we do think it may be a little tough once we get down to the, the mid-twos to kind of squeeze out that last little bit of disinflation all the way to the 2% target. Is that, yeah, so those were three, right? That was all three. Thank you. Um, Jay, let's talk about rates volatility. There's been a tremendous amount of it. You and your team have written about it. Talk us through what drove this volatility. Have we fallen back to a more sustainable pace? Sure. Thanks, Sam. So I think both on the upside and the downside, it's been, as you said, very volatile. And it just stands out that we're now close to 40 basis points lower in yield than we were at the peak just about a week and a half ago. So what got us to 5%? I think, you know, fundamentally, there's been this story that we've been talking about for some time that 
the treasury market is sort of undergoing a you know pretty strong shift here um, with respect to the underlying demand for, for risk-free assets. And if over the better part of the last two decades, we've relied upon more price-insensitive investors in the form of the Fed and U.S. banks and um, foreign investors, um, we're transitioning to a world in which we're kind of um, looking for more price-sensitive investors to take hold here. And it's coming at the same time where, where supply is increasing rapidly. So I think that was part of the trade um, to higher yields, aided by some poor technicals in the process. And then certainly, I think the flip side is, as Mike talked about what we learned from both the Fed and the employment report last week, the third piece of the puzzle, I think, is the Treasury Department, where we received a refunding announcement on Wednesday morning in the U.S., where the size of the increases that we got, though still quite large, were, were slightly more benign at the long end than we or the consensus had expected. And we also received more guidance from the Treasury Department, rather firm guidance, that if anything, um, we should expect that after February, it's unlikely we'll see further increases in coupon issuance. And that sort of shaded expectations and allowed yields to come back down against the backdrop of a Fed, which was less hawkish, and an employment report, which was pretty benign as well. So here we are, at the peak in yields, I think when we were close to 5%, we were probably 40 basis points higher than we'd expect, considering how the markets were pricing Fed policy growth and inflation expectations over the medium term. With where we are right now, we are much closer to fair value. So it seems like we've taken out a lot of the, um, the discount in the bond market that was being priced in, in the worst fears in the latter half of October. Okay, then I guess as a follow-up question to that, talking a little bit more specifically around deficit. Yeah. You pointed out to me earlier in an email earlier this morning that we've known since the spring that deficits will remain large. So talk to us about any shift or might have, what might have made that, I guess, more salient to market participants and what some of the knock-on effects of that has been. Yeah, I think it was in the summer. Um, in the middle of the summer, it was like a five-day stretch where there were two important announcements that sort of brought it to the forefront for the markets. The first, I think, was the July Fed meeting where Chair Powell, when being asked about policy levers, said, you know, can you possibly have your policy levers in opposition and continue to run the balance sheet down via QT if you potentially lower rates next year because inflation eases, as Mike has talked about? And the chair said yes, because both would be normalizing those policy tools. And it's a recognition that the balance sheet is still too big. And there's 720 billion in treasuries running off the Fed's balance sheet every year. So incrementally pushing that timeline out was more supply for the markets to digest. And then it was compounded by the announcement in August where we learned from Treasury that it was going to be a series of coupon increases over the coming months and quarters that sort of kind of got us to this inflection point. And it was all happening at the same time where Mike's talked about the resilience of the US economy, where we understood we were running more firmly above trend. And for investors who are waiting to add duration, to waiting to add rate exposure, expecting the Fed to be done tightening, this continued to push out that timeline. So I think it was that inflection point. We've known deficits were wide, as you said, but it was understanding the, the incremental changes in supply coming from both the Fed and Treasury that may have been the impetus during the summer. And then I have one corollary question. You've written about this in, I think, in the Fixed Income Markets Weekly publication a few weeks ago, but this idea that to see some of that demand from price-sensitive buyers come back, you have to see volatility come down. And so that's a little bit of a chicken and an egg, catch-22. Yeah. Is that the case? I, it certainly is. And I think when we look at it, we one would expect that 
asset manager and more price sensitive forms of demand should be robust here because we've got aggregate fixed income index yields at 15 plus year highs. But what we find is that when investors are chasing that yield, they're going to money market funds without the duration risk. Whereas now, longer out the curve, because we are on the verge of the third consecutive year of negative total returns for risk-free assets, they are staying short. So perversely enough, I think we need to see yield stabilize, total returns become steadier over a three to six month horizon to see those inflows start to pick up. And they had, to be fair, at the starting of the at the start of the year. But then as we've had this sort of very aggressive move to higher yields between the early part of the summer and just a week ago, they really slowed down aggressively. Okay. Uh, Mira, so then on the flip side of that, the dollar has appeared to have stayed stable despite the large swings in the yield. You can agree or disagree with this assessment. Um, you're the head of FX strategy. And I wanted to ask you, do you agree? And then also, yes, no, why hasn't the dollar moved more? Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks, Sam. And thanks for organizing this call today. Look, um, I think um, I think it would be fair to say that in the first half this, of this year, in particular, the dollar was quite range bound. Uh, I mean, we had a pretty narrow two and a half percent range in the trade weighted index. But certainly since July, we've seen larger moves. You've seen, uh, you know, about uh, five, between five and six percent strengthening in the dollar since then. So I would say it's been a bit of a range breakout, but certainly you're right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, given the kind of volatility we've seen in rates markets, for example, by contrast, FX has been more subdued. I think that's fair. So while not in a range, I think certainly reduced wall compared to other macro markets. And I think, um, I think there's several reasons for that. I mean, the first thing is that that um, typically when you see such large moves in US rates, it also tends to result in large moves in interest rates outside the US as well. So if you look at something like, uh, you know, European yields, bond yields, for example, went up uh, as well in, in sympathy with what was going on in the US. You saw that even in low yielders like Japan. And what that means is that, um, and, and, you know, for FX, what tends to really make a difference is, you know, how divergent are these trends? But if you have the move in a similar direction, it tends to mute the volatility in FX a fair bit. So I think what's more important in these instances is really what are interest rate differentials doing? And that they did move in favor of the US, but by smaller magnitudes. And that's why you're getting a slightly more muted reaction in FX. But to me, I would characterize one, the first half more as being range bound um, for the dollar. Um, and I think there were very good reasons for that because you had obviously, um, you know, the carry support, the yield support for the dollar was still very much intact, but what you were getting offsetting, a, a big offsetting factor of that in the first half was you were getting green shoots out of China and Europe that was keeping a lid on how high the dollar can go. That lift, that lid effectively de facto lifted in, in late May, early June. And that's really when we turned uh, and rec started recommending dollar longs. And you've seen, you know, the dollar strengthen alongside that. And I would no longer call it, um, I wouldn't um, call that in a range anymore. And I think the narrative pretty much continues to be more around US exceptionalism, uh, which, and if you take a look at, broadly speaking, um, you know, the, the, the moves in the dollar, um, given what interest rate differentials have done, that seems largely in sync. Um, so even though it looks like optically, you know, the volatility is a lot lower than what we've seen in rate markets, it's I think about right, given what interest rate differentials have done. 
So Mira, one more follow-up question for you. Um, I read your uh, team's piece that came out on Friday evening. Did you make a shift in anticipation of the October payrolls report on Friday? And what was the reasoning for that? Did you take off some of the long on the USD? Yeah, I think um, I think that was um, more of a tactical shift, just a recognition that the 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 series of events, the way they unfolded in um, the U.S., um, started shifting and started skewing the balance of risks around um, around the dollar. And uh, you know, if you take a step back, and you know, the two main pillars for our bullish dollar view were really, firstly, it's U.S growth exceptionalism, which is U.S. outperforming the rest of the world. I think, um, you know, that's diminished a bit, but still pretty much stays intact. And the second issue was the U.S. yield narrative, which, uh, you know, which Jay has spoken about as well, given the rotation and demand, the rising term premium and all of that. And um, I think what became pretty clear to us was that um, given um, the outcome uh, from the Fed, given the softness in the data that we had even seen before pre-rolls, particularly, uh, particularly the ISMs, um, and um, uh, you know, you know, the, and then, then of course there was the Treasury refunding announcement, which I personally think is a bit of a red herring. Um, but uh, all of that sort of set things up that U.S. interest rates had moved lower already, and it looked like the dollar was quite. Um, look to be overshooting that. So to me, going into payrolls, the risk was that um, was that if we get a soft payrolls, um, you know, um, 150 or lower, pretty much like, you know, 160, which Mike was, um, was uh, forecasting, that the risk here was that the dollar would catch down uh, to the level of rates. So we did think that the risk reward, uh, reward warranted taking some of those um, dollar uh, longs off tactically. But, you know, the underlying narrative hasn't really changed. I think one thing that's really underappreciated from last week, you know, everybody's been focused on the U.S., but one thing that really happened last week was that we can't weakness in data outside the U.S. as well. And so to me, you know, we may have shifted down in terms of um, sort of how resilient the U.S. is, but in reality, that gap versus the rest of the world is still quite wide. Okay, so then that's a good segue to turn back to Mike and talk about two things, the Fed, two angles, but let's start with cutting. So last I checked on Friday, the market was moving up the first cut from July to June. That being said, um, hiking, do you, do you see any risk that the Fed actually does have to hike again in the near term, given that Chair Powell, while sounding more dovish, didn't actually take off further rate hikes off the table? Mike, you're on mute. All right. Uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, uh, there's uh, there's always a risk, but you know, so ne never say never. Um, you know, that said, I think we uh, well, one thing. I mean, Chair Powell clearly sounded pretty pleased with the disinflation he's seen so far. So I don't think he would want to you know upset the apple cart, given that it's happening in a way that's been you know pretty painless. Um, and certainly one of the three or four key metrics ahead of the December meeting has, I say three or four, because the second CPI may come, you know, too close to the meeting for it to really be useful. But certainly um, last Friday, I think, reinforced the sense, um, uh, as I said, that private activity is slowing. So, you know, I think even if you got really strong uh, numbers between now and December, uh, that would make... January more interesting than, than December. So I think it's it'd really be surprising to me to see December and, and even January, I think, given Powell's body language, 
um, I think you, you kind of need to to run the table here on stronger growth and inflation data. Okay, then the next logical question, I guess, is around cuts. Your official forecast is for third quarter 2024. Um, is that, I guess I would ask about what economic data you need to see to expect that. What, what do we need to see before they're going to start initiating cuts? That's a broader, better question. Yeah. Um, so, uh, correct, we're looking for third quarter. I think as Jay mentioned, um, Powell has kind of recently opened the door to uh, this idea that they could normalize policy rather than, you know, um, uh, which would imply, I think, that, that uh, you know, the economy is expanding, albeit below trend, like we forecast, but that, it, you know, inflation is coming down below 3% and that that could start a process which wouldn't get them to a neutral rate setting, but just take off some of the restraint on the economy. Um, you know, I think. Historically, what you see is the risk, which is if we get negative payroll growth, um, you know, the narrative is going to change like immediately, right? So I think in that scenario, um, you know, we could see we could see cuts before what a, you know our, our forecast is, and and I think we would you know we wouldn't be talking about normalizing policy; we would be talking about you know traditional easing uh, uh, easing path. Okay, that's very helpful. Then Jay, I guess shape of the curve, factoring cuts into the rates outlook, and I guess how do you see the rate, uh, the risks around the rates outlook? Yeah, I think thanks, Sam. Just to follow on with what Mike said, I think if we feel more comfortable being at the end of the hiking cycle, we should feel more comfortable being at the peak in rates. And if we are approaching in the third quarter next year cuts, that should be supportive of lower yields and steeper curve as well. Um, and I think our baseline here would be that um, even as the Fed cuts, it's probably unlikely that you'll see longer term yields decline as much as they did in previous cycles. So net net a steeper curve to your point or to your question. And it's already telling that the front end of the curve, twos tens, has already steepened about 65 to 70 basis points off of its flattest levels just a few months ago, as we've sort of priced in this term premium supply demand story that we talked about earlier. This is, we think, more structural in nature and just is going to prevent long-term yields from falling as much even as the Fed eases. So I think it's fair to say rates lower as the Fed eases in the second half of next year, but we'd feel more comfortable being overweight duration in the two to five-year sector where it's more sensitive to what the Fed's doing and less exposed to some of these idiosyncratic supply-demand factors that should be continuing to drive term premium higher. So rates would be lower across the curve but we feel more comfortable being long the short end and hence in a steeper in a curve steeper position overall. Okay. Um, then Mira, turning to you, let's talk about the dollar, right? So obviously generally on average, Fed rate cuts are gonna be negative for the dollar, but you already alluded to the fact that it happens in an ecosystem of what other central banks are doing and what's going yeah. on with and rates. Um, I mean, dare I say BOJ, just put that out there. But like, <laughs> Talk to me, I guess, around what you would, some scope for the dollar to soften. I mean, pick up your in growth. Just give us, I think, your team's view on the dollar outlook going forward once we start to see Fed cuts. Sure, sure. Um, and I think this is this is where it becomes um, quite context dependent, right? Because we can, we can sort of think about, oh, typically Fed um, 
you know, you can go back in time, for example, the last three hiking cycles, you see when the Fed comes to a pause, and then when they start cutting, you tend to see euro dollar actually strengthen quite substantially at the end of uh, Fed hiking cycles. But you dig a bit deeper and you, what you'll find is essentially um, that in the past, um, you had the Fed leading and the ECB lagging. So the Fed tends to hike first, they go pause first, and uh, they cut first. Now, um, you know, and in that context, that would make sense, you know, for euro dollar to strengthen quite substantially um, in um, in the back end of such um, such cycles. Now, um, the question here is going to be, you know, what is what is the context? If, if again we focus on euro dollar um, uh, as an example, uh, you know, say the Fed is cutting rates, but actually the reason they're cutting rates is um, is because you know inflation has come off and growth seems to be doing okay. It's a bit of a soft landing scenario. Yes, it's growth is, um, is um, you know, sort of starting to go below trend, but say we avoid a recession. Um, but the key issue here is for ECB, they're already grappling with that situation. Um, you know, right at the moment, for example, um, you know, Mike's growth forecast for the US um, is one and a half percent for the fourth quarter. Uh, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. And then we're coming north of 4% um, uh, from the prior quarter. Uh, in Europe, it's a very different situation. You know, in Europe, uh, in Eurozone, the ECB was forecasting that growth would be about 1.5% at the moment. They took that growth uh, target and they uh, or growth uh, projection, they cut it to 0.8%. So they nearly halved it. And uh, meanwhile, PMIs are suggesting that growth is tracking negative 0.3%. So to me, if we are sort of gradually going into this um, slowdown, and the Eurozone is already flirting with the recession, then that's not an environment in which actually the Euro can rebound and the dollar can necessarily weaken. So I think it depends on what currency you're talking about. I think as far as Euro dollar is concerned in the near term, I expect the US exceptionalism you know, narrative to dominate. And uh, you know, if the question is, well, at some point, do you think you know, that this can change um, because say European growth picks up or something like that, then that 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 changes the narrative a fair bit. Uh, but I can see that as the year in the early part of the year, um, and in fact, our targets uh, indicate this, our uh, euro dollar target is uh, between parity and 103 for the next couple of quarters. That's on the premise that euro is going to continue to underperform from a growth standpoint, and that's going to reflect in the currency. But over time, that weakness is going to rotate to US and Europe is going to start to base and start to improve. And that's when you start to see the cyclical lift. So I would expect euro dollar heading towards the 110 area um, or higher as the year progresses. Okay, great. Mike, I wanted to ask you a question that's a little more long-term in nature for all our clients who do strategic asset allocation, asset managers, long-term capital market assumptions, and the like. U.S. growth. Um, agree or disagree that there's maybe an emerging consensus that the U.S. economy could continue to outperform in the long run? I guess I'd ask you, do you agree with the view of American exceptionalism when it comes to growth? Do you want to talk about productivity or demographic trends? Or You can take this question in any direction you like. <laughs> um, you know, I think there are certainly some hints of um, uh, some rays of hope, I think, in terms of long run growth trends. And even, you know, look, I guess what I would say is if we're talking about in an international context, even the kind of um, disappointing trend growth developments over the past decade in the U.S. were even more disappointing abroad. Right. So um, so the U.S. was outperforming for even 
uh, even though we underperformed our own expectations and, and some of the more recent experience from the late uh, 20th and early 21st century. Um, now, relative to that, we have seen improvements over the last year um, on both productivity uh, and uh, in demographics, particularly the recovery of the foreign-born um, workforce. Um, you know, and I guess there are some, I wouldn't necessarily project all of that improvement forward, but I do think, um, you know, there are certainly some, um, you know, I think on the, the foreign-born workforce, it's easy to see that, you know, persisting. I think there are some, you know, short-run glyphs here we could see for productivity. Um, you know, then you get a little more conjectural when you start to get into things like, uh, you know, we talked about AI earlier this year, and certainly there are some really possibly boomy projections around that, but it's really kind of difficult to map that into, um, you know, into a forecast. But, uh, but I think, as I said, um, you know, it feels like risk may be tilting a little bit to the upside on, on trend growth. Um, and certainly, I think in an international context, that's a pretty, that's an easier call to, to make that I think the U.S. should continue to outperform internationally. Okay, thank you. Mira, another longer run topic that you've written about extensively is de-dollarization and why this might seem unlikely in the near term. Also a shout out to our China economics team. They just put out a great piece last week on de-dollarization of financial assets in China, which was also very good and pairs well with Mira's research. Um, are you concerned at all over the longer time horizon around de-dollarization and could that drive dollar weakness? Um, so I think we have to distinguish between um, some of these cyclical factors and the structural longer term factors. And I, I do think the cyclical will dominate in the near term. And again, you know, coming back to the exceptionalism story I mentioned before that, you know, it's also what's going on outside the U.S. I mean, the question you asked, Mike, in relation to productivity and trend growth, I think that has implications for the dollar near term um, as well, because um, essentially what you, you know, what you're seeing is substantial weakness outside the U S the productivity in the U S is growing up, going up in Europe is actually weakening. Um, you know, I just want to sort of wrap up this thread around the exceptionalism story and the cyclical, how strong the cyclical dynamic is, um, in Eurozone over the last week, we've had every single piece of data that's come out has been on the weaker side of expectations, whether that's inflation, whether that's GDP, it's IP, um, and, you know, of course, the flash PMIs before that, the employment numbers are also starting to soften. If you look at the rest of G10, whether it's New Zealand, Canada, Norway, Switzerland, you know, that's, we're seeing misses in data everywhere. And importantly, China PMIs also were softer than expected. So I think the cyclical dynamic of US exceptionalism is way too strong. Um, and that's going to sort of offset some of these longer term structural factors. Now, on de-dollarization, look, you can think about de-dollarization in a couple of different ways. Um, that is sort of your usual transactional dominance that gets a lot of attention. Those are the metrics. How much is dollar comprising of you know, traded volumes and currencies? What does the trade invoicing look like? What are cross-border liabilities look like? And where, what we find in all of these categories is that the dollar share hasn't really fallen if anything in fact in in many of these transactional categories the dollar still screens as you know top of class it's it's retaining that dominance if not going up to record highs you are seeing however you know a different definition of 
de-dollarization that is being referred to these days, which is really more about the real demand for the dollar, you know, through your traditional um, um, sort of participants, like, you know, from FX reserves, what is the FX share, um, uh, you know, of the dollar um, uh, in FX reserve, for example, when they intervene in markets and things like that. That, if you adjust for, you know, mark-to-market valuations has been declining. It's gone down to a record low of 58%. I mean, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's still within the longer run range, but it's certainly at the lower end of that range. Uh, that share is going to be even lower when you look at other things, like what is the physical demand for the gold, for gold, right? Because a lot of central banks that actually, or quite a few EM central banks, have increased their demand for gold as well. So if, if you think about their FX reserves portfolio and you incorporate gold in that, that share for dollar has fallen even lower. Um, there is anecdotally conversations we've had for the commodity strategists that they're talking about commodity transactions have started to shift uh, to different currencies it's happening in a small manner but it's happening with higher frequency which over time should only continue to go up and um, you know the other thing we're seeing for example cross-border settlements in yuan are going up as well and particularly if you look at china trade a larger and a larger percentage they are trying to shift away from the dollar as well so i think if you look at aggregate numbers, you're not really seeing this trend, but you know certainly you have to go dig a bit deeper into the second and third layers to see it. And I think it's reasonable to expect the de-dollarization to happen. At the end of the day, the U.S. footprint and you know its share of global trade or global GDP is shrinking, so its use the as a currency should shrink over time as well. It's just going to be a multi-year, multi-decade period over which this happens. And I think, you know, for most people um, probably on this call who have sort of the six month to one year horizon, this is not necessarily going to be a big theme. But I think once we get to the other side of the slowdown and the Fed's cutting rates, that's usually when you get your dollar weakness in the recovery phase. I would expect that if you combine, um, you know, the fact that the dollar is rich, the fact that some of this background de-dollarization is happening, the fact that you've got a fiscal, you know, concerns around the fiscal deficit being the largest outside of a recession in the U.S., all of those factors are going to come into play and the dollar weakness we get will be more pronounced than usual. But but we need to first get to that recovery phase. And I think that's the part that's going to be more challenging. Okay. Mira, thanks for adding that part about American exceptionalism because you've written a lot on it and I didn't ask the question and I meant to. So thank you. Um, final topic before we do a lightning round, which is going to be fun. Uh, let's talk about the government shutdown, potential government shutdown. Um, we heard that this is still percolating up from clients, even though it's obviously less front and center than perhaps it was before we had a speaker. So um, Jay, I'm going to start with you. Thoughts on that? How concerned are you? Hey, from a like market perspective, Sam, you know, very little concerned. I think because again, a government shutdown is vastly different from a debt ceiling showdown, where you know, I think something like 80% of the outlays still go out. And as Mike has highlighted in the past, even in the most protracted government shutdowns, almost all of that spending is recouped as, as soon as the the shutdown is is ended. Um, so I think the Treasury can issue is normal. We don't need to worry about anything like that. But in the past, over the last four shutdowns we've seen over the last 30 years, Treasury yields have declined into the period prior to the shutdown and then followed through lower. So one could say that there is a reaction on average that happens. But I think in each instance, we've noticed that the Fed was pivoting dovishly. Back in 95, 96, the Fed was 
easing in its kind of mid-cycle scenario. Um, and again, in 2013, um, it actually decided not to taper in September of 13 and pushed it back. More recently, in 1819, the Fed was raising rates, but it was pivoting much more dovishly after that. So I think more critical for the outlook in the Treasury market is probably what's going on with the Fed, all is equal. And it's unlikely you'd see Treasury yields decline as they have in the past. If anything, given this concern that you've brought up around fiscal and the supply story, if this is one more evidence or one more piece of evidence that the government cannot function smoothly, perhaps this is something to think that would actually be bearish for U.S. rates in the lead up to the November 17th deadline. Mike, would you add anything to that sentiment? And then Mira, I want to hear your view on what could happen with the dollar if this was to come to fruition. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the only thing is, I guess it was last week or the week before, um, Speaker Johnson indicated that he'd be pretty open to a CR, a continuing resolution to extend funding to either Jan 15 or April 15. So um, it's not that we're not worried about it, but it may not be a worry for the second half of this month, but for the second half of January. So it's, um, uh, yeah, it's tomorrow's problem. Um, but for now, it seems like until until we get them to there, it, it should be, should be. But, you know, just because he wants a CR doesn't mean that he's going to get a CR, but it's, it makes it more likely that he, he indicated this openness. Okay. And then, Mira, any thoughts on how USD could react? Um. Usually, if we get um, political dysfunction, it tends to be dollar negative versus other reserve currencies. And at the moment, uh, the other reserve currencies are still struggling with their own issues. We've got a, you mentioned the BOJ, um, uh, unwilling to really adjust their policy meaningfully, even though they've been taking incremental steps. You've got, uh, and if US yields are higher, that, that tends to generally be a negative. Uh, you've got euro which is grappling with its own growth um, undershoots so that leaves swiss franc and indeed we did see swiss franc as being the one that that tends to react quite favorably so i would imagine uh you know that that we would see some underperformance of the dollar versus versus some of these other reserve currencies particularly the franc okay and then to wrap up the call we're going to go in alphabetical order by last name if we were to do this again in three months let's say all of us were speaking again two clients on this call what would we be talking about again what would we be talking about in three months jay well i think mike brought up an important point about the inflation outlook right now like we've been through a very strong disinflationary impulse the last few months and interesting to see where the fed stands on inflation because powell was very dovish on inflation, inflation expectations, and wages last week. I, I think we'll be talking inflation in February. Mira. Um, Jay already mentioned the U.S. Fed and inflation, so I won't mention that, but I would say from a global context, um, to me, the question would be if ECB should be cutting before the Fed. That's not something that we have really, uh, or the market has really addressed. Um, the second would be BOJ, um, you know, what they're going to do with their uh, monetary policy and frankly if they're getting fiscal stimulus now as well if that changes that outcome and then on china what you know what's next that's going to prop up growth because they already seem to be running out of steam already given judging from the pmis okay and mike um all right well if we get a shutdown in january 15 it's a good chance it could extend well into february um you know we'll be starting primary season so 
like it or not, we're gonna have to start talking about that. <laughs> um, and then, you know, job growth has been slowing. And if you just kind of straight line the trend, um, by February, you might be um, worrying about getting too much of a good thing, too much slowing in, in job creation. Someone had to take this there. There you go. So a gamut of topics. Um, I want to call out the U.S. Fixed Income Markets Outlook Survey. If you are a client and eligible, please fill it out. It's very useful to us and clients. Um, and also, I just want to shout out our podcast channels because I always do that. And Mira posts on our podcast channels every week on FX comings and goings. Jay, Mira, and Mike, I want to thank you for your time and insights. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast was recorded on November 6, 2023. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Institutional clients can visit jpmorgan.com backslash research for more important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved.